class. I like to be in the small room and have discussions, so bear with me as we get through this today. And I also tend to like to drift away from the mic or not talk into the mic, so raise your hands if you can't hear me and be loud. And I also enjoy to have discussion, so I know this isn't really the right form for that, but if you have questions, if you have comments, if you want to raise your hand, feel free to, to do it. You won't um, annoy me at all, and that will be actually welcomed if you'd like to, to say something or add to. Um, so let's go ahead and uh, go to Lord in prayer this morning before we get started. Lord, Father, you're such an amazing God, and I just thank you for this morning, Lord, for for blessing us with the uh, the opportunity to come here to study your word and to enjoy, enjoy each other's fellowship. But Lord, most of all, to be here to remember your son Jesus and the sacrifice he made here on earth. Come here as a human to to give up his life for us because he loves us. And I thank you for, for sending him to us, that we have that opportunity to to choose him to be the Lord of our life, to be with you forever in heaven. And... Uh, as we uh, go into this week, Lord, as we sometimes tend to focus on on the worldly things because of Christmas and the way the world sees this time of season, Lord. But help us to focus on you. Help us to focus on your son during this time and help us to serve others. Help our hearts to, to just stay with you. May we glorify you in the decisions we make this week. May we show others your love as we... Uh, go into this season. Again, thank you for your son, Jesus, and I pray these things in his most holy and precious name. Amen. All right, so we've been about a chapter behind in the other class, so I was going to do Deborah and Barak with our class uh, this week, and then move into Gideon. You guys all touched on that last week, so I'm going to skip that for, for my class in the room. So, We'll have to, uh, you'll have to go back and take care of that yourself and read those chapters. Um, I do want to point out, though, that um, what I like to do is just kind of start with a uh, overview. I've never been up here with slides before. Does this TV come on? I never turned it on so I can see what's up there. Thanks, Tracy. So I'd just like to refresh on what the book of Judges is about and why why it was written and uh, God's purpose for it. So um, one of the key verses in Judges is Judges 2.16. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. But we can't forget um, where in the Old Testament this book of Judges took place. If you see here, the blue is where the book of Judges is. And God started out with creation, of course made the world due to sinful man. We uh, had the flood that killed all but Noah. Then uh, Abraham came from Noah and uh, had 11 patriarchs started the, the Hebrew nation. And then they went bondage, bondage in Egypt. And then they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. And then uh, God sent them into Canaan. And Joshua was the main character there, you know, with the conquest of Canaan. And then Joshua dies, and the book of Judges begins in in uh, in Canaan. And because of Joshua's inability to, or 
unwillingness to kill and get rid of all the, the inhabitants of Canaan. We have the, the period of judges where um, we'll see how they have a cycle of sin and being suppressed and then calling on judges and going through that cycle over and over. And then we had a united kingdom under the, the king Saul, David, and Solomon. And then the kingdom's divided. They go into captivity and then they come back and rebuild the wall and, and so that's kind of where the book of Judges falls into the history. And so this in Judges 2, 10 through 20, it talks about this cycle of Israel serving the Lord, Israel falling into idolatry and sin because of the inhabitants of the land. Israel gets enslaved or is oppressed. Um, Israel cries out to the Lord. God raises a judge. Israel is delivered. And then Israel serves the Lord again in the cycle. We'll repeat itself and as you all know, it not only repeats itself in Judges, it continues on and on and on. And we even tend to do it today in our own lives. So the outline of Judges is uh, we studied in 1 and 2 um, the decline of Israel where they, were, they failed to complete the conquest of Canaan. And then judgment for failure to complete the conquest, which we've all talked about before. And then we get into the deliverance of Israel through the Judges. And today we're... Um, we'll do 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 next week in my class anyways. So we'll talk about Gideon today, but we have the list of judges through uh, chapters 3 through 16. And then we'll, um, at the end, we'll get through 17 through 21, which talks about their idolatry, immorality, and the infighting among the Hebrews. So, and again, I've talked to, to my class about these this last four chapters really take place throughout the whole book of Judges. It's not a chronological order. All of that just doesn't happen at the end of the book. So it'll be interesting to talk about that. And another key theme in Judges 3 that we talked about is that uh, they did not drive the inhabitants of the land out, so they left a thorn there to uh, test and tempt and um, the Hebrews. And so I thought I got rid of those. Anyways... So here's a map of where all the judges are in the land. And so if you see it, it goes throughout the whole land of Canaan from south to north. And uh, Bob Lawrence pointed out, we looked at the scale one week. This is really about the distance from here to Seward. It's not a, a huge land. It's not very big. And so for them to be able to travel, it took them a while, but not that long to be able to travel by foot or camel or however they got around. So for, for Israel to be oppressed by these other nations and affect the whole land wasn't that big of a deal. So today we'll be talking, whoops, I got to the end, about, uh, I thought this was working earlier. Here we go. There it is. So Gideon took place up to the top, and then uh, act in, <clears throat> but we'll, we'll get to different maps about him later. But that's who we're going to talk about this morning. But I want to back up a little bit <clears throat> to Deborah and Barak and talk about that. Um, I want to go back, and I, I don't have all the verses up here and chapters, so I'm, you guys are going to have to have your own Bibles out this morning. And and go through. So I want to go back to chapter 5 really quick and read verses 17 and 18. 
So if we, um, chapter five is about the song that Deborah and Barak sang and sang to the Lord after they, after they were, um, were able to, to win the war that they had. But if you notice in verses 16 or 17 and 18, Gilead remained across the Jordan and why did Dan stay in ships? Asher sat at the seashore and remained by its landing. Zebulun was a people who despised their lives even to death and Naphtali also on the high places of the field. So these are the tribes that Deborah and Barak were saying. They didn't come help the Israelites. They kind of stayed away. And they were away from the war area. And it kind of applies to our lives in a way that if you're not being affected by what's going on, you tend to stay away from what's going on. You don't jump in and help. And so even though these were their own brothers and sisters that were at war, these tribes stayed away because it really wasn't affecting their daily lives. And it also showed that during this time, each of the tribes were very independent. They didn't have one king that could bring them all together. They all didn't. They all followed God in their own way or their gods and idols. And there was no political um, cohesion together as all the Israelites, as they had under Moses, where they had a clear leader. Um, and then we'll see this play out throughout as well. So if all the tribes had come together and helped, they probably wouldn't have had all these air times of oppression. But because of their independence, of their desire to just stay as their own tribes, they had uh, issues as a collective whole. So let's jump on over to chapter 6. And I'm just going to read through the chapters as we go today. And hopefully I get to say everything I have written down. So um, chapter 6, verse 1. We'll start, uh, so, in, at the end of Deborah and Barak, the land was undisturbed for 40 years. And if you remember, their land was up here, is where they had their war, toward the top. And, uh, whoops, how do I keep going to the end? I wonder if I didn't hit save, because I moved that at the end. All right, so 6-1, that's what I wanted. Okay, so 6-1, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens, which were in the mountains, in the caves, and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents, and they would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Okay, I'm going to stop there. 
So, um, according to the book of Genesis, the Midianites were the descendants of Midian, who was the son of Abraham and his wife uh, Keturah. And uh, in Genesis it says, uh, Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah, and she bare him Zimran, and Jokshan, and Midian, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shuha. So, and then it also talks about the uh, Amalekites in here. And uh, the Amalekites is a nation described in the Hebrew, or described in the Bible, as enemies of the Israelites. The name Amalek can refer to a nation's founder, who was probably the grandson of Esau, and his descendants, the Amalekites, or the territories of Amalek in which they inhabited, which is a lot of Canaan. Now, if you remember back in Genesis, uh, when Moses fled Egypt, he went into the land of Midian, and that's where he spent 40 years. That's where his father-in-law was from. And so Moses was actually um, very influenced by that. Um, it was a tribe mostly back then. They were a small nomadic group. And uh, they tended to hang out down here. Well, I'm going to get used to this thing sometime before the end of the morning. So the land of Midian. So if you look, this was the... Um, traditional route people think of the uh, the wilderness wandering started up here in Egypt and came down to Mount Sinai and then uh, up here and so the land of Midian was kind of over here so if uh, you also remember I want to go to numbers 31 another significant event happened during the wilderness wandering so if everybody can turn to numbers 31, I'm going to start in verse 1 and read through 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take full vengeance for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. Afterwards, you will be gathered to your people. Moses spoke to the people, saying, Our men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. A thousand from each tribe, and all the tribes of Israel you shall send to the war. So there were furnished from the thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed for war. Moses sent them a thousand from each tribe to the war. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, to the war with them, and the holy vessels, and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. So they made war against Midian, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian along with the rest of their slain. Evi and Rechem and Zer and Hur and Reba and five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. The sons of Israel captured the women of Midian and their little ones and all the cattle and all their flocks and all their goods they plundered. Then they burned all their cities where they lived and their camps with fire. And I want to jump to verse 17. Verse 17, now therefore kill every male among the little ones. And kill every woman who has known man intimately. But all the girls who have not known man intimately, spare for yourselves. And then jump over to verse 35. They're actually in verse 35 now. They're recounting how much booty and things they took from the Midianites. And I just wanted to point out 35. And of human beings, of the women who had not known man intimately, all the persons were 32,000. 
So according to Genesis, when Moses went in right before he died, they slaughtered the Midianites. So there's not a whole lot of time between when Moses died and what's going on now. There's just a few generations. I wanted to point it out, verse 35, because there's only 32,000 people left from the Midianites when Moses destroyed him, but they were all women. So for that nation to rebuild enough to oppress the Israelites now was a pretty significant event and to have that many people and the Israelites not be able to overcome them is significant and I just wanted to point that out that the Israelites had had a history with the Midianites and uh, it wasn't favorable so um, this is a map that shows uh that green area is kind of fertile land in Canaan. And so if you look right over here, there's Jerusalem and Canaan. The the folks that came and, and had war with Deborah and Barak occurred in the northern end. So they came over from Mesopotamia. And I was just showing you the Midianites came from down in here and worked their way up above the Dead Sea and were raiding in here. So they were really in a desert land, and they didn't have a whole lot of food that was easily accessible. And so every year, the Midianites would come up here around the time of harvest, and they would go in and take the food and destroy the fields. And for seven years, they were oppressing the um, Israelites in a, in a very strategic area where all their food was, or all their fields were. And again, that was in a land opposite of of where quit that the previous war had taken place, and there was forty years of peace. So there were different tribes involved this time in with the Midianites. So that gave them easy access to the food, and it, the Israelites went to the caves and had to hide. From not the Midianites, the Israelites went to their caves and had to hide from the Midianites every time they came in because they just didn't have the power or didn't collectively come together to really guard and, and occupy their own land. And the Midianites were able to do that. So, um, verse six there talks about. I got to get back to Judges. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. So here's where we start getting into um, the next judge. And starting back in verse 8, or we'll go to 7, of Judges 6. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian, that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. And again, that's a repeated cycle. Here's God reminding them of 
who he is and what he did. And I couldn't find anywhere of who this prophet was. Um, They don't name this prophet, but he came and spoke for God and uh, just kind of gave them a reminder of everything that God had done for them and uh, before he sent his angel in verse 11. So we'll get into verse 11. And as a reminder, I showed this, this slide previously. The angel Lord is kind of mentioned four times in the book of Judges. Uh, the first time in, in two, he talks about punishment and what's going to happen to the Israelites. In 523, he uh, gives them a curse. In this uh, chapter, chapter 6, he gives encouragement to Gideon and the Israelites. And in chapter 13, he, he gives them some instruction. So four times throughout this book, the angel of the Lord appears and speaks. And so starting again in uh, verse 11, chapter 6. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abezerite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did the Lord, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? So here's the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon. And, okay, I'm I'm kind of out of order here, excuse me. And Gideon is the son of Joash, who was an Abazarite. And the Abazarites are actually um, one of the clans of Manasseh, the tribe of Manasseh. And he was, um, Abizer was the son of Gilead, and the Abizerites came from him. And so Joash and Gideon were members of that clan. And here in these verses that uh, Gideon describes the Abizerites as the weakest tribe of Manasseh. So not only did God choose the youngest child of this family, he also chose the weakest tribe of one of the half-tribes of Manasseh. So when the angel Lord came, um, Gideon was at the wine press grinding wheat. Well, it's pretty obvious that you press grapes in a wine press and you grind wheat in uh, a mill. And so Gideon wasn't actually doing, uh, using the right tool for the right job. And as the Bible says, he was at the wine press to hide from the Midianites. And um, back then, the wine press was actually a, a large vat where the grapes were collected and the juice was pressed or squeezed. And it was usually dug in a vineyard somewhere um, deep into the ground. So it was actually an easy place to hide. And so... As the Midianites were coming in and, 
and scavenging and taking all the food, Gideon's family actually took some of the food and hid it. And actually, instead of just being standing by waiting for things to happen, they actually made efforts to feed their families and to do something other than just be oppressed by the Midianites. So he took it upon himself. His family took it upon themselves to make sure that they weren't just hiding in caves, that they were doing something productive to um, continue their existence. Um, and I think we as, as Christians a lot of time will take bad things that happen in our lives and make excuses for not taking action and doing something to to help others, to help our family, when in fact there's things that we can do. Um, God will always give us something that we can do to be productive in our lives to, to help out. So um, I just want to challenge you guys, you know, don't use the excuses, don't use the bad things in your life to just say, I can't do it. Whatever your challenges are. So, and then... In verses uh, 12 and 14, you know, the the angel Lord does encourage Gideon. He says that uh, he calls Gideon a valiant warrior. And in 14, he says, the Lord looked at him and said, go in this your strength and deliver Israel from your hand of Midian. And I just kind of want to bring that um, into the New Testament a little bit. And how can we apply that to our lives? Acts 4.29, if you want to go there, says, And now the Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. That's where Peter and John were preaching the word, and they were getting threatened from all sides, and they were wanting and praying that God gives them confidence to continue speaking the word of God. First um, Corinthians sixteen thirteen um, tells us to be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. Ephesians six nineteen says, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. So there's just three three times there that I've chosen. There's there's several more in the New Testament where God you know, wants us to stand up. He wants us to be strong and he needs us as warriors for him. And so this is a a good reminder looking at what Gideon has been told to do, that we can still apply these in our lives today. All right. Let's go ahead and jump into verse 15 of chapter 6. And he said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least of Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But surely, said to him, Surely I will be with you and shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that is, you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in the basket and the broth in a pot and brought them out to him. 
under the oak tree and presented them. The angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in the hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and the fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. So Gideon wanted a sign from from the angel that this is truly what what God wanted him to do. And one of the questions I want, and we'll see this play out a few times in the next couple of chapters, is, is Gideon a coward? Is Gideon fearful? You know, he, you know, the, God just reminded him through a prophet all that he has done for them through Egypt, and yet Gideon here asks for a sign, do you really want me to do this? Fortunately, the angel of the Lord accepted the offering and moved on, so that was a sign to Gideon, yes, God, God is accepting but uh, just think of the time that was going on and, you know, was, was Gideon a coward or was he just being cautious? Because he, he has been seeing the oppression of the Israelites um, at least through the seven years. Um, that was a punishment from the Lord. So it was an overwhelming, it was very overwhelming and uh, that it resulted in self-doubt when the angel of the Lord appeared. And it's not surprising um, the oppression was of the Lord, and there was nothing Gideon could have done until the Lord heard the Israelites cry and visited them to uh, end their oppression. Um, just like Moses couldn't do anything about the oppression of the Israelites in Egypt until the Lord heard their cry and sent them to deliver them. So I don't think that uh, Gideon was a coward. I think he was just being cautious, and everything that was going on was from the Lord. And I think Gideon was very, very aware of that. So starting back in verse 22, when Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abizarites. So... I'm going to keep moving on. Now on the same night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bowl and a second bowl, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bowl and offer burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him, and because he was too afraid of his father's household, And the men of the city, to do it by day, he did it by night. So here's another example of uh, Gideon being fearful of humans, um, even though God had instructed him to, to do this, to make a sacrifice, to tear this down. He was still still afraid of the worldly threats that could come to him. And again, you know, it's just him doubting because of everything that had, had been going on in that area during the time. And then in verse 28, when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down 
and the Asherahs which was beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. They said to one another, who did this thing? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die for he has torn down the altar of Baal and indeed he was cut down and the Asherah which was beside it. So, again, here's um, Gideon doing what he's been told by the Lord with some doubt at first, but he went in and did it wholeheartedly. And this is kind of a sign of things to come. God asked, again, the Israelites, really get rid of the sin in your life before I put you on to the next step and uh, take you out of the oppression. And so um, they were serving Baal. They were serving the Asherah, um, which... It will continue to to plague them throughout the history of the Israelites. So, in um, I'm going to keep moving on because we're getting close to running out of time. So we've all read the story many times, the sign of the fleece. So Gideon asks, you know, God, another sign. Okay, God, do you really want me doing what you're asking me to do? He wants to go out and destroy the Midianites. And so twice he asks God for a sign, and twice God gives him a sign through the fleece that, uh, hey, yes, I truly want you to do this. And so that takes us through the end of chapter 6. I'm not going to read through that. Feel free to go back and do that on your own. And uh, getting into chapter 7, I want to get through this hopefully in the next 10 minutes. So... Um, Gideon started out with uh, 20 or 22,000 men of Israel came to help destroy the Midianites. In uh, God's eyes, that was too many. So let's start in verse 1 of chapter 7. Um, in the previous chapter 6, Gideon was renamed Jeroboam. And uh, all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, for Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. So this is God's going to, you know, saying, Yeah, we've got enough people. You could go in and slaughter them with, with the thousands that you have, but I want to make sure you know this is from me and not from anything else, that I'm here to deliver you. It's not Gideon's hand. It's not your own hand. It's me that's going to deliver you. And so he uh, says to, to the Israelites, Gideon says to the Israelites, whoever is afraid, whoever is fearful, go ahead, go home. We don't need you. So... Uh, all but 10,000 left and went home. And then we go down, and that was still too many people for for God. And so um, he had them go down to the river and drink from the river. And um, in verse 5 it says, So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. So I read a couple things that really, um, it's kind of inconsequential. The whole point here is God wanted it to be fewer people. 
And the things I read basically said those who actually cupped the water, if you can see these guys standing up, they the water lapped it from their hands. They stayed aware to their surroundings and what was going on because the Midianites were there. The guys who are who put their weapons down face first into the water weren't being aware and watching their surroundings. So the 300 men were kind of maybe the elite people who were kind of being aware of what was going on and saying, hey, we still have a war to fight. There's, there's our enemies out there, and they were paying attention. So that was one of the reasons Gideon chose those 300 men was because they were war savvy. They were very aware of their surroundings where the other men just didn't quite care. They put down their weapons and they weren't quite ready to go to war. So with these 300 men, um, let's go to verse 7. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands, and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So this is a a map I found that kind of shows what happened. And I think as our kids grow up, as we put them in Sunday school, we tend to trivialize what happened to Gideon. We make it a cool kid story of breaking clay pots and torches. And this was really a war. There's, there were lives, there was men involved, and there took some strategy to really get through. I mean, God can do anything through anyone. But there was really, it's really interesting and neat how God um, did this. So all the tribes of Israel came to Ophrah here. And um, the 10,000 that were chosen kind of went in this direction. And then the others... We are running out of time. Okay, and we ended up with 300 over here in the hill of Morah. And so the hill that they surrounded were, was up in this area. And the Midianites were down in here. So these 300 men were up on a hill and were able to go down into the valley. But when the Midianites come in, whoops, they came from their lower area here and came up. And this is where Gideon attacked them. And so when they dispersed, which we'll read, sorry, I keep doing that. They went this way. Those other 10,000 men that the Israelites had were here waiting actually to destroy the rest of the Midianites as they came out and, and fled. So you had the 300 men who were up on a hill. I'll probably show that one next week. Oh my goodness. That did not have all my slides. There's another map that another picture. I'm not sure what happened here, but it it really just shows where the Gideon, where all Gideon's men, the 300 were surrounding this valley that they came down into. And God had a a really good strategic method for using the men to destroy the Midianites. So, um, we just need to remember, um, as in 
in verse 2 of chapter 7, the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midian into their hands. Um, for Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. And that is really the key theme to the, the rest of chapter 7, is it happened because of the Lord. God set this up. God had the valley the way um, he wanted it and put Gideon right there at that perfect time to, to destroy the Midianites. And in chapter 8, we'll kind of go through the rest of the route as that comes down. But uh, as we end here, let's go to Second Corinthians 12 and read verses uh, 9 through 10. Second Corinthians 12, verses 9 through 10. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with the weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So we just need to remember, you know, we need God. Gideon needed God. The Midianites could not have been defeated without God. Gideon couldn't have gone in and defeated. And that applies to the Corinthians 2,000 years ago, and it applies to us today. Don't try conquering anything in your life without going to God first. He will take you through and make you victorious. So with that, I will leave it, and we'll get into chapter 8 next week. Thanks for being here this morning.